Let's pray as we go to God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the grace that we pause and remember this time of year. And Lord, thank you for the richness of Christmas. Lord, thank you that you are a God who is, while you, on the one hand, you are simple to understand, you are not simplistic. And the depths and wonders of you are unfathomable. And Lord, we could spend the rest of our days pondering them and contemplating them and yet never begin to get to the depths of who you are and all that you have done. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to understand that to a small degree, that our worship of you might be enriched, that our celebration of Christmas this day and years to come would be fuller and more meaningful. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I do hope that you are having a great Christmas. I hope that it has been enjoyable. I hope it has been good to join together with family and with friends. I hope it's been a time that's been restful for you. And just think about the experience that you're having right now. And the experience of uh, this time of year, of pausing, of resting, having this all stop in your life of everything that's going on, just to pause, not only to prepare, but to focus for this day, for Christmas Day. And consider how this experience right now is a foretaste of the eternal feast with Jesus Christ. A, a foretaste of Jesus Christ who is our eternal rest. Actually, scripture would say that he is our Sabbath rest. Hmm. How appropriate to be celebrating Christmas Day on a Sunday. To celebrate this experience and to have this experience of rest and renewal and refreshment and this all stop and it happening on a Sunday, the day that our life is actually supposed to stop and rest. Imagine that the experience that you're having right now, you actually made it such a priority that you experience this on a weekly basis. And that's actually what God calls us to as his blessing, to celebrate the Sabbath and to celebrate worship. That we would do everything else that we have to do in our life, all the busyness, all the other activities, that we would do those things in the, other, in the six other days of the week so that on Sunday, the people of God would gather together and pause and worship and enjoy relationship with one another and meditate on God's word and be encouraged in their faith. What a wonderful thing it would be for our souls, would it not, if we actually focused on the Sabbath every week of the year. Let's turn our attention here to Christmas. Focusing here on Christmas, explaining what Christmas is about. You know, one of the rich things of Christmas time is the, tradi the traditions, the heritage, the family traditions, the cultural traditions, the biblical traditions, all these different things that get infused. Like, all of a sudden, this time of year, we stick a, a green Christmas tree in our sanctuary and in our homes, and it's topped with a star and garland and poinsettias, and we light Advent candles, and and why is there a pink Advent candle anyway in, in, the, in the wreath? You know, why, why, why is that there? And these all these other different symbols and things that we have. Symbols that at one point were introduced to enrich this time of year. 
And so what I want to do this morning is to focus on a couple of the uh, symbols of Christmas, the symbols of Christmas that we kind of become accustomed to, but don't really know why we celebrate them. What I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on the lyrics of several of the songs that we've been singing through Advent and just explain the depth of them so that when you sing them today and the rest of this week, but moreover when you sing them next year, when you celebrate Christmas, that those songs would have a deeper meaning for you and a, and a much greater richness for you. First one I'm going to begin with is the theme of Bethlehem. I don't think that there is, I mean, I mean Bethlehem pops up in a lot of Christmas songs. And so you have, O little town of Bethlehem, how still, still we see thee lie. Several verses later, it says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we, we pray. But why this focus on Bethlehem? Again, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, O come ye to Bethlehem. Why this emphasis on Bethlehem? Angels, we have heard on high, come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. What's all of this focus on Bethlehem? Is it just simply this recognition that says, hey, Bethlehem, you're the winner. Of anywhere the Messiah could have been born, the, the Messiah is born in your town. You're the winner. Isn't that great? Let's remember the great thing that happened for you. Well, not surprisingly, there is a whole lot more as to the significance of Bethlehem. And when we sing a song like, Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem, that should mean something to us. That should be a statement to us that should enrich our worship. That we say, yes, yes, it was Bethlehem. Yes, it was to Bethlehem. How amazing the grace of God is that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Now, why would we say that? Here's why. Well, Bethlehem has a, very, has a, a pretty rich heritage in Scripture. Um, Bethlehem itself is a small little town located on a rock outcropping five miles south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is surrounded by very fertile fields, surrounded by fig orchards and surrounded by olive orchards and surrounded by vineyards. And so Bethlehem, the name literally means house of bread. And Bethlehem Ephrathah, the second half of that word means fruitful. So it was a region of fertility, and it was a fruitful, abundant house of bread. No accident that Jesus Christ, the bread of life, was born in the house of bread as God sent him to the world, to the whole world, so that those who hunger would find their satisfaction in him. But again, why Bethlehem? It was widely known among the Jews and widely understood that Bethlehem would be the site of the coming Messiah. It was understood because of the prophecy from the prophet Micah, given 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And this is the prophecy that was given to Micah, verses 5, to the people of God through Micah. Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. At this point in time in biblical history, the northern kingdom is separated from the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has been conquered. Assyria has come through and obliterated Syria, obliterated Israel. And it is just the southern kingdom, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, who is now referred to 
as Israel as a whole. So there is siege coming upon them. And it says, siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, meaning that, that Israel is about to be struck down. And then there comes this prophecy. But you, imagine that, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is, of, is from of old, from of ancient days. What is the hope of the promise here to Bethlehem? God is encouraging the people of God that though their enemies are coming to destroy them, that though their temple is about to be defiled and demolished, though the Babylonians are about to come and humiliate their king, who was the bearer of God's covenant promise, though all of this evil is about to happen, God himself is going to raise up a king for the, in Israel. That the ancient promises... God's ancient covenantal promises, even though right now it appears to the people of God that those promises are, are no more, that those promises are getting cut down and being eradicated. What it's saying is that the ancient promises made to David still stand, and that there will be a ruler not, who will be born not in a palace, who will be born not in a place of power or prestige, but who will be born in the unimpressive little town of Bethlehem, a little town that was so insignificant, it wasn't even worthy of being a tribe of Israel. In fact, it was so insignificant, it wasn't even being worth identifying with a clan of Israel. And what it shows, O you Bethlehem, is how this reflects the character of God, how God comes to an insignificant place, how he comes to the smallest and even the most insignificant people and brings his promises to them. That his promises are not, yes, they are for the powerful, yes, they are for those who are in prestige, but more than that, they are for the broken. They are for those who feel insignificant. They are for those who feel that everyone else has passed them by, even a place like Bethlehem. And it is to those who feel insignificant feel unworthy, that God brings his promises. To them, the promises from of old, what it says here, the ancient of days. The promises from of old, from ancient days, that is, through the seed of Eve, that, the, that there would be a child who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent from Genesis 3.17. The promise of old from Abraham, that through the lineage of Abraham, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And one of the lines of Abraham would be David, King David, through whom there would be an eternal king who would come and reign over all and reign over all of the universe and God's blessings would be made known. Why does this matter for us? What should happen is that when we sing a song like, O Bethlehem, O holy child of Bethlehem, O little child of Bethlehem, that should remind us. We should say, yes, Bethlehem. Yes, God comes to the insignificant. Yes, God comes to those who are threatened. Yes, God's promises are true, even it appears 
that when all hope is gone, praise the Lord that God comes to Bethlehem. That's what Bethlehem should do for us. Now let's take a look at a couple more phrases. There's a number of phrases that are used in a variety of other Christmas carols, um, different references in a variety of Christmas carols. And the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, actually combines a whole bunch of these phrases. So let's take a look at a couple of them. Verse 1, O come, thou rod of Jesse. What is that? O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. This phrase here for rod of Jesse comes from Isaiah chapter 11. We actually have two different references for Christmas songs. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All right, well, what is this reference here? To a shoot shall spring forth from the stump of Jesse. At this time, Isaiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom, to the two tribes who are left, about 600 B.C. at this point in time. And, at this, and what's happening right here is that he is saying that what is going to happen is, yes, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to conquer the southern two kingdoms. They're going to get whacked down. The, the, the tree of Jesse, that would be David's father, um, David, Jesse being David's father, and so the promise that was given to David that there would be this eternal kingdom and this eternal king who would come through the lineage of Jesse, through the lineage of David, and would bear fruit and all the nations would be blessed, it appears that that promise has been cut off because the Babylonians are coming and they're conquering and they, are, and they have um, taken the king of Israel into, are about to take the king of Israel into exile. And so it appears that the, the rich promises, the rich fruit-bearing tree of the kingdom of God that is to come, it appears that all of those promises are dead, that the tree has gotten whacked down, that all that is left of, this, of the promises of God is this stump that can do nothing. But what Isaiah says is that that's not true, is that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That even though the tribes of Israel have been godless and have been cut off, the promises of God are not dead. There is a shoot that will rise up, and it will rise up, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Yes, the eternal kingdom is still coming. This is actually for those of you that use the Jesse tree or know the Jesse tree tradition. It comes from this. That even though it appears that the promises of God have been cut off, no, there is a shoot that rises up that will bear fruit. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is the shoot of the stump of Jesse, who is filled, as the text here says, with wisdom, with understanding, with counsel and might, and his spirit is upon him. Well, here is what this stump does, and this brings us back to the first verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide to dispute what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth 
he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, the rod of David. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So what is he saying here? That this stump of Jesse, this shoot, is going to rise up, and he's going to rise up, and that he is going to have a rod. And as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel says, O Come, Lord, come, O Rod of Jesse. Well, what is the Rod of Jesse? The word here for rod, in, in the, what's used in the biblical usage of this, is the rod is the rod of a shepherd's staff. It's also translated in other passages of Scripture as a ruler's scepter. It's his rod. But very, very frequently, the rod is referred to as one of a warrior's weapons. So what he is saying here is that there is going to come a weapon from his mouth. The rod from the stump of Jesse. And what he is going to do, it says, with the, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. That the rod of Jesse, merely by the word of his power, just simply by his speaking... God is going to eradicate the wicked. Wicked, Evil shall be no more. There shall no be no more wickedness in this world. There shall be no more evil in this world. So, when we sing a quaint little song that says, O come, thou rod of Jesse free, what we are saying is, O come, O mighty weapon of David, come and bash open the head of wickedness. Come and bash open and destroy the evil that is in this world. Destroy evil, destroy wickedness, and set your people free. Set your people free from what? From Satan's tyranny? How is that going to happen? Because the rod of Jesse has come and has conquered and has bashed and defeated the devil. From the depths of hell thy people saved. Give them victory over the grave. How does that happen? It's because Jesus Christ, in his victory over the grave, bashed the head of death so that death is no more, so that we have life eternal. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, thou rod of Jesse. All right, the next one. Next verse. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. All right. This one comes from two passages of scripture. The first is Zechariah's song in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah being the one who was told, uh, given the promise of the Lord, and after he saw the baby Jesus, he gives this prophecy, this long song, and he ends with this. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadows of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Come, thou dayspring. Now, Zechariah, being a priest of the Lord, 
would certainly have drawn this from his meditation upon the promise to Malachi. And what Malachi says is this, Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament, this is the last word of the Lord before 400 years of silence. The last word before the people of God are going to experience a 400 years of darkness, 400 years where it feels like God is not with them, and that they are just under oppressive powers. And the last word that God gives them is this, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Why? Because they've been burned up. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Why? Because the Son of Righteousness shall rise. That is, that there is a day coming... When even now, O oh people of God, who are about to go into 400 years of spiritual darkness, there is a day of coming when day will break, when day will spring forth. And that day when day springs forth, it is when the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, will appear. And when he appears, he will be the light of the world. He will be the light who comes into the darkness, as John chapter 1 says. He will come in to give hope to those who are wandering in the darkness. And the way that he brings hope is he brings his righteousness in and of himself, and he brings his righteousness to shine upon us. What an encouragement that gives to people who feel that they're walking in darkness. As the people of God were about to walk into darkness, the last word that they get is, yes, you're walking in darkness, but daylight will come. There will be daylight. The day spring will be there. The sun of righteousness shall rise. So we sing. O come, thou day spring. Come, thou sun of righteousness, and shine your righteousness upon us. Come and cheer our spirits by your advent. You're coming here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Why? Because the night of darkness is over because the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, has appeared. All right, fourth one here from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is this one, which says, O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Okay, it's a little bit self-evident from the verse. Jesus is the key, Son of David, who's going to open up our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. This one comes from Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 23. And it says this. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. What God is saying through Isaiah is, there is going to come one who is in the lineage of David. His name is going to be Eliakim. This is a real historical person. And God is going to bless him and put his sash upon him, 
and give authority to him to be the ruler over Judah. Then it goes on to say, and I will place on him the shoulder, on his shoulder, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, saying, there's going to be a humanly king in the lineage of David by the name of Eliakim, and this king is going to lead the people of God back into righteousness. However, what happens is that the responsibility and honor for Eliakim is too heavy for him to carry. It is too great for him. And just a couple verses later, Isaiah says to him, he says, Though I establish you like a peg in a secure place, your peg has been ripped from its hinges and has fallen out. Eliakim will be no more. He will be cut down and fall because the responsibility to him is too great. But the promise that God gives is still there. That there is a descendant through the house of David who will hold the key of the house of David. And Jesus Christ is the one who is the true holder of the key, which opens up the gates of heaven for us, who alone can lead us out of judgment and open the way to eternal life and eternal dwelling. Jesus Christ, who alone is able to bear the full weight and not give way and not have his peg break when he, when he is tempted. He alone is the one who is tempted to the extreme and yet does not bend, does not break, but lives his perfect and sinless life. Why? So that through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, the gates of heaven would be opened wide so that all who have a relationship with him, whether near or far, would be invited and by his spirit drawn into a relationship with his heavenly father. Jesus actually picks up on this theme. Jesus acknowledges that he is the one who is the key to heaven. And he says to his apostles and ultimately to the church, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The church is not the key. Jesus Christ is. But he has entrusted the church with the message of the gospel. And in particular, he's trusted the elders of the church with the ones who are the inspectors of whether or not people's profession of faith it's consistent with what Scripture, has, with what scripture says, says and what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is the key of heaven. So, which is why we sing the song. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. No human person could do it. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. So consider just these things that we have looked at here, how Jesus Christ and these few symbols that we looked at is the fulfillment of Scripture, how Jesus Christ comes to Bethlehem, to the insignificant, to the threatened, to the hopeless. Jesus Christ is the child of Bethlehem, not one who comes in arrogance and power, but one who comes in humility, that Jesus Christ is the eternal judge who will defeat evil once and for all. He is the shoot in the fulfillment. He is the shoot of the stump of Jesse in fulfillment of God's promises. He is the rod of David, the one who conquers all of his and our foes. He is the dayspring from on high, the son of righteousness. 
He is the key of David who opens wide our heavenly home. So in just examining a few of these things that we sing every year at Christmas, may your Christmas be full and may it be enriched and may your worship be enhanced by the depth and wonder of Scripture. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are not trite nor simplistic, but the wonders of your word are profound. Lord, thank you for the things that show us about your character, how you come to us in our need, you come to us in our brokenness, how our salvation has nothing to do with us but everything to do with you. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came in the flesh that we celebrate and worship so that we could have a relationship with you from now through eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.